Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let us seek him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. When God led Israel out of bondage in Egypt, he led them by his great fiery cloud of glory. That cloud taught the nations to fear. But the same cloud brought shade and warmth to the nation of Israel. And so we learn that when you get on the right side of God's glory, there is comfort to be found. This cloud, the Bible says, becomes a shade over their heads in the heat of the day throughout all their journey in the wilderness, and it becomes a fire over them at night to keep them warm. This same awesome cloud that rattled Sinai, they experience in this way. And now, every time that the people of Israel are to arise and move forth in their journey through the wilderness, and as they move forward, you will discover that there are armies that they come against and armies that they defeat. This same cloud, when it's time for them to move, will rise up off of the tabernacle and go before the people. When that happens, it's a cue. They go and they fold up the tabernacle that they had put up for the ark to be resting in, and they fold up their own tents, and the priests come and they run staves through the sides of the ark and the priests carry the ark on their shoulders and they go forward and the cloud goes before them and the people then follow to move on to another place where God will lead them. And think of this, this is likely over a million people being led following a procession that is guiding them, this Shekinah glory cloud. Now, imagine if you're not Israel. Imagine instead you're the communities that lie before this mass of people being led by this great glory cloud. What fear would strike you? What awe? What trembling? And so every time they set out, fear would rumble through all the residents that might be before them. But for the people of Israel, when they picked up the staves and began to follow the ark, Gladness and joy and rejoicing. This all-powerful God was residing among them and going with them and domiciling with them as they went about their way. This is an experience again of the various ways in which the glory of God are experienced. For one, dread, fear. For the other, joy, rejoicing, great comfort. Our Lord Jesus is coming back one day. He actually has told us that He's coming back on the clouds of glory. When He returns, we have accounts of what that would be like. Actually, when the Lord Jesus comes to return for His own, it will set off what is a time period that's called the day of the Lord. It is a time period of tremendous judgment and destruction upon the earth at His coming. Revelation chapter 6, verse 16 tells us of the experience of those who witness this manifestation of the glory of God. It says at that time that they will cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them, hide them from Him who is seated upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. How differently we will come before the Lamb. Right? 
When He returns for us and gives that call, I want you to know it's going to be a different experience entirely for the person who's been a child of God and has known Him domiciling with them. For Him, when those clouds avail themselves, no fear will shudder through us, but gladness and joy and rejoicing. And what we'll see is the Lion of Judah, and we'll look upon Him as a Lamb, as though He were slain for us. His hands will be extended to us to receive us. Every once in a while, I have the joy of having somebody tell me about some dream that they had where they pictured the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, those dreams are always sweet and pleasant and thrilling. The overwhelming hallmark of the story is one of great gladness and great comfort. This is what we're anticipating. What's the application to all this? Well, we're living in a battle zone right now. The enemy is raging all of around us. Uh, we who are seeking to live for the Lord Jesus know that raging more than others because he seeks to draw us into his snares and his temptation. He is bringing the world down into ruin even as Christ is preparing to come again one day. Just a little aside here, a little devotional I posted to some of my friends this week. I even spoke to a person who came to me distressed earlier this week. I, I asked the person, listen, when you read in the book of Genesis, that first chapter where it says that God created everything at the end of each account of the six days, then there's a phrase that says this. Let me just ask you. It says, you can fill it in your mind, and blank and blank were the first day, and blank and blank were the second day. Do you know what I'm saying? And fill in the blank, and fill in the blank were the third day. What does it say? And what and what were the first day? Anybody know? I hear a morning and evening. That is almost entirely correct, but that's not what it says. It says, and evening and morning were the first day, and evening and morning were the second day, and evening and morning. You see, we as human beings move from morning to evening. We rise up with a sense that we're going to do good today. This is going to be the day in which we're going to conquer, and we end in fatigue. You know, we go into the darkness, you know. God starts in the darkness, and he says, from this I'm going to bring forth my light. I'm going to triumph. So we see all around us the darkness that's settling down upon the world, and we fret and we worry, and God is just preparing to bring forth his light. It is the cycle of his creative power. Well, we live in a world in which there is uncertainty and there's persecution, and it's happening all around us. Even today, there are more Christians being suffering persecution in this hour than at any other time in the history of the church. And yet, how are we to go forward? Well, we must go forward with confidence. We have to go forward with joy and gladness. Not patching on some fakey, happy smile. Not whistling in the dark. Not drumming up some kind of trumped-up musical quartet or strings and pulling all the... No, we're supposed to go forward with a sense of confidence that rises up within us because of the conviction that God is with us and that the glory of His salvation is set upon us and we cannot but help but prevail. And this same salvation will render destruction on all those who will not receive it. That's confidence. Go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. Let's look at this. Paul is in prison, and the young church is being hounded by those who are stirring up resistance against them, 
and bringing persecution upon them. Paul is in prison. The church is being persecuted. Paul writes these things to them. This is an expression of confidence. This is the right reaction to the glory of God's salvation made known to our hearts. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. And that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Here's what he's saying. God intends that our confidence, our gladness, our joy, our song, our extolling of Him would be assigned to those who are bringing persecution and destruction upon this earth that we are under God's salvation and they are under His impending judgment. They might not receive it at first that way, but that will be the residue and the remaining message that the Spirit of God will guide to their heart. How does the Spirit of God take that to the heart of men? By finding in us a confident, glad, rejoicing spirit in the midst of our trials and difficulties and persecution. It is a clear sign that is to go before us. Here's another lesson now for you. There are the two experiences of God's glory. One is to be cast in fear and to sense God's judgment. The other one is to cause to rejoice and give gratitude and to sing praises. Right? An interesting thing, by the way, this nation is to sing praises as it leads out. By the way, all the other nations are armed. This nation is an armed Israel. They're only armed with the salvation of God. All the other nations have an army and have had years to prepare their battlements and to get ready to resist, but all the nation of Israel had was a little ark and the fire and presence of God going before them. Lesson number two. God's glory before His people opens to our view Himself seen in His holy home, His holy habitation. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. It's as if what's being said here is that this little ark, this tabernacle that is in their presence, that we set down among the camp of Israel, and they would camp all around it, sweeps into their presence the God of war. And that God, in a sense, as He's in that little tabernacle, is residing in His home before the people of God. That's what they're saying. The enemies of God see God riding in judgment, riding on the clouds of wrath, and to them the glory of God is revealed in His power as He comes out of the heavens to bring destruction. Second Thessalonians expresses this power of the glory of God when the Lord Jesus says He's coming with His angels to bring flaming fire and vengeance upon all those who know not God. And that's how the unbeliever experiences the glory of God. He is seen in the procession and regalia of war. But we are not here introduced to God in that way. The redeemed and those made righteous see Him differently. We see Him as He were in His heavenly home. In His holy habitat. That's the idea. 
A man goes off to war, or a man goes off to his job, or a man goes out into the public square in order to promote the welfare of his family, or to promote the welfare of his business or his career, and we see that man, and we encounter that man, but we really don't find out what he's like. We really don't truly meet the man until we find him in his home. You know, when he comes home and he takes his suit off, when he comes home and he sits back and he makes himself at one in this place. Yes, God governs the world with power, and he comes riding upon the clouds, and he rules over the nations, and his splendor goes out before him, and he rides upon the storms, and he rules over all the stars, and yet here we're invited to come to his tent, to his dwelling place. Alfred Barnes, who was an old commentator, writes it this way, we are invited to come before God and see him in his quiet heaven. And here we may look most closely at that character that he wants us to know about him. This one who is the all-powerful God who brings judgments upon the earth. And what we encounter is something rather marvelous, rather wonderful. Now, I just have one question for you by brief application for this that we see in his appetite. Is that how you're able to approach God? In your own life, do you know that you can approach God in his holy habitat? That he's dwelling in a place where you can meet him and he domiciles with you? Has that been the exchange? Was God before you as a consuming fire only? For the Christian, there is tenderness in the midst of our fears before this holy God. He truly is our Father who art in heaven. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this broadcast, call us at 208-331-4096. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.